welcome to 42 to Doomsday. My name is Mark. And I'm Rob. And as part of our Terrible 2 celebrations, we thought we'd wheel out some old guests who haven't been on the podcast for a while. And our first guest is a man who, let's be honest, needs an introduction. So, how's it going? Pretty good, yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. And thank you for wheeling me out of the cryogenic freeze. It's uh, good to actually breathe the fresh air again, guys. It's <gasps> air! It feels so good! Oh, please don't put me back in there. Who are you again? Uh, Rob Lloyd. Rob Lloyd, actor, comedian, and Time Lord. Hello, Rob. Welcome back to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you doing, Rob? I'm well, uh, Rob. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll end up confusing ourselves during the course of the recording, but yes, I'm well yourself. I'm so happy to be back. It's always a pleasure to uh, listen to you guys, but to be in the same space as you two gentlemen is one of the biggest privileges of my life. Oh, bless you. Um, <laughs> last time you were on, I think, was August last year. Yes. So, what have you been doing in the meantime? Anything uh, Doctor Who related? Let's get that uh, out in the open. First. Yeah, the Doctor Who stuff's still going. Like, I did Who Me up at uh, the Lords of Time 3 convention up in Sydney. So, I got to hang out with Katie Manning and Terence Dix, which was awesome. I finally got to meet Terence Dix. Um, uh, Matthew Waterhouse was there and he was... Matthew Waterhouse. He, he was Matthew Waterhouse. Uh, Jeffrey Beavers was there, who's delightful. Gary Russell um, hit on me uh, notoriously. <laughs> Again. Um, and, yeah, it was just it was just wonderful. So uh, And a couple of them actually got to see me do Who Me, which was wonderful. Terence Dix actually sat and watched my show. He fell asleep through b- bits of it, but whenever I mentioned John Pertwee, he was awake. Um, <laughs> he, he screamed, Wobot! Wobot! <laughs> Buffon! Um, and yeah, and then I did uh, the Symphonic Spectacular, the Doctor Who Symphonic Spectacular. They um, uh, toured that around in January and February, and I was invited to host this new initiative they created called um, VIP uh, Ultimate Fan Experience, where uh, the night before you uh, pay top dollar and you get to have a very private affair where you get um, free drinks and canapes and you get um, a question and answer behind the scenes session with all the people involved in the show so the writer, director, producer um, the conductor the host who was Peter Davison the guys behind um, uh, the effects, Millennium Effects were there as well and also um, John Davey who's been in like about 30 episodes of Modern Who and he's there as monster captain so like teaching the young uh, local talent how to perform as the monsters so mm. I did that for for uh, for about a month every weekend I'd fly to a new place so I went to Adelaide Perth Sydney and Auckland and got to work with the BBC again which was amazing and I uh, got to hang out with Ben Foster conductor of um, uh, Doctor Who and um, Peter Davison and all the wonderful people from um, the BBC and um, Andrew K management and um, from uh, BBC Worldwide Australia. It was really, really fun. You've been involved working with, let's say, a television hero. Yes. And a conductor. Yes. Has your opinions of those people changed <laughs> since doing that tour? Um, look, it was um, it was a stressful time. Mm. I found out there um, with with the show, and uh, and and so uh, egos and emotions were strained by the end of it. I came in. Uh, I, I was only in like Friday, Saturday, so mm. I was in and out. So these guys were doing it five weeks straight and they were together all this time. So by the end of that time, there was a lot of tension and a lot of, um, uh, yeah, just a lot of strain and everyone was very, very tired. So I only got to see this like in little stages. Um, 
but after the end of it all I was you know I kind of kept my distance from it because I could see <clears throat> there was a lot of they just wanted to put on the best show they could and they wanted to perform to as many people as they could as well they wanted to really you know everyone's so passionate about Doctor Who and just wants to do well with it and I could see everyone was just trying to be on the same page but it got a bit tense at times and so I only came in at points and see how it degraded which was kind of hilarious but I mean you can understand that I mean they're living in each other's pockets for as you say five weeks so a certain amount of cabin fever uh, is understandable yes I mean I'm not doing saying anything too controversial to mm. say that um, it was a great show it was incredible I mean I saw the original one when it came out years ago with Mark Shepard hosting um, he was phoning it in, wasn't he? He was so phoning it in. He was mm. so phoning it in. He was just reading off a cue card and I just went, what? Um, but this one was great. There's a lot of Capoli's music, so mm. they've changed it up a bit. It's a lot more synthesizer and a lot more retro 80s sounds and darker, really great you know, retro type music, which I loved. Um, but they struggled with audiences because they wanted to push it to venues they'd never been to they'd never been to Adelaide they'd mm. never been to Perth and never been to Auckland so they didn't want to rest on their laurels by going back to Melbourne because they've done Melbourne what three times yeah three it? times and sold out every single one yeah. Sydney last year sold out as well um, so they wanted to go to places because that's the thing with Doctor Who fans we go oh okay this is where we're offering it and everyone instead of going that's great they mm. go oh so you're not coming to us you're not coming to us and so they wanted to this year go okay let's expand it out to the places we've never been and that was a bit of a risk because it was at the start of the year as well so it was that post Christmas period where people are you know tightening their belts and numbers were not as strong as they would have hoped and I think they realised that the Symphonic Spectacular has been great but it has been done in Australia a number of times yeah. probably enough and they hadn't even done it in America or the UK which they've just done they've just done their tour of the UK and they're just about to take it to the US so even everyone in Australia was there going on the production going okay well maybe it's time that we give it a rest in Australia because we've done it enough because that's the thing if you get too if you do it too much people get complacent and go well we'll just see it next year that's right and so numbers drop off mm. so they needed to do something big and that's what we're getting uh, later this year it's amazing how bands, you know, go out on the road for 14, 15 months and most of them survive intact, apart from Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there was definitely some uh, Noel Gallagher behaviour happening. Which, which or Liam? Was it Liam or Noel, you reckon? Oh, it was Liam. It, it was, was Liam. Noel, Noel, was, Noel, was, guitars Noel was always the noble artist where yes. Liam was the, 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 show, the show pony lout. Mm. Um, so that kind of coloured my opinion of, of certain people, which was a shame, but... Um, so I kept my distance. I really wanted to just do the best I could and not, you know, not burn any bridges and, you know, just take the opportunity, which is a privilege to work with the BBC and the fact that I've done it two times already. I didn't want to let that be affected in any way. Mm. So I just kept my distance and just did the best job I could. Um, but on that last night, I got some really nice feedback from all, all the ones involved. So to sit down with Peter Davison for a couple of minutes and just have a chat. And that was nice. And Ben Foster by the end was very, very nice to me as well which was really good um so yeah it was just it was an eye-opening experience to mm. to see the strain of you know of a tour in that in that size because it's a massive show the symphonic spectacular is huge the amount of sets and props and just taking over an entire arena spectacular in four cities is uh just insane so it was um yeah, definitely eye-opening to see how the beast that is the BBC operates its number one show. And the ultimate fan experiences, the the, the VIP uh, shows you were running. Yeah, uh, well, it was it was it, it was a very odd thing because it'd never been done in Australia before, and everyone who's a Doctor Who fan has a very 
specific view of how they interact mm. with their fans, with their with their with their stars, because of conventions and because there are so many cons happening in Australia at the moment, it's kind of become the new thing for business to go. Okay, well, let's get a couple of you know obscure actors out, and we can you know milk as much money as we can out of these people. So fans are aware of how conventions are run where you pay top dollar and you yeah. get to get an autograph you get a photo you get an interview you get a dinner with them sometimes you sit down and chat so they're used to that type of format but a convention is a whole different beast and a whole different contract as opposed to what this uh, symphonic spectacular ultimate experience was whereas the actors in that were or the performers were signed to perform so they would know all the commitments that you would sign for to do a convention, they didn't sign. Mm. When it came to the VIP event, it was a, it was an additional thing just to sit down, chat, and it was before their final tech rehearsal, which the VIPs got to see as well. So audiences were paying this money, and they were expecting it to be like a convention. So there was a lot of negative backlash online from all these people going, well, I pay top dollar to go to a convention and I get an autograph, I get um, a photo with them, I get to sit down and chat. But for this, it's just an interview and we get a... A, a canopy and... A canopy and free drink like and sort off. And so they, people were, you know, comparing it to something that, you know, yeah. that it couldn't be compared to. It was unfair mm. to compare it to. Um, so there was a lot of backlash. But so every t- every time before the VIP event, and I was always the first person they saw because the convention because the uh, symphonic was on the Saturday and I was the show was on the Friday night. So everyone was coming in and they were getting their little show bags with a signed Peter Davison photo, um, signed Peter Davison special edition poster. They had special edition shirts. They had all the uh, free drinks. They had all these really specific knickknacks that they were getting. They get to have this hour long question and answer session with all the people behind the scenes and then they got to see the first 20 minutes of the the symphonic spectacular for the final dress rehearsal. It was a wonderful experience and they got as much free food and drinks as they could for an hour and a half. But there was but people didn't know that. They were coming in going, "Oh, it's not like it's at cons we do this, we do that." So there was a lot of hostility at the start of each of these um VIP events mm. and so at the start of each one I, would, I was taken aside going Rob you got to hit this you got to do this well you got to okay because the people are really tense and upset and so I had to work really hard to entertain them keep them happy keep them laughing and bringing on the guests at a good time and asking good questions and making sure the energy was really good so like we had the people from Millennium Effects and they were great talking about the effects we had a silence come out one of the full costumes of the silence we had people come up and do workshops on how to move like a silence how to like kill like a silence and the kids loved it and the audiences loved it uh, then getting Peter Davison up for 40 minutes and he could just stand up and I pretty much just walked around handing the microphones to each of the people um and then they watched the symphonic rehearsal for about 20 minutes and so after all four events people came out just you know singing praises on the whole evening mm. but it was a lot of tension there because they were unaware of what they were getting of what they were getting because it had never been done before but it was really successful i think it was you know a great idea to add something different mm. um and they trialed it here and they didn't do it in the uk and i don't know if they're doing it in this in um the us but it's something very unique about australian cons where you pay extra to go and and meet and you meet and, dine and have dinner with and, yeah, them and stuff like that. Yeah. So the people were there expecting to get a con experience, but they got something, in my opinion, better. a bit better. Yeah. It was run a lot better. You had uh, someone; it wasn't just handing the mic to the guest and just mm. you know letting them run for for an hour and hoping for the best. There was a, a style, a, a purpose, and you got a bit more than you would having a silence walk on. And the kids love that type of stuff. And, yeah. Um, 
so yeah that was an eye-opening experience as well just sort of like you know that the bbc went okay we're, we're not sure how this is going to run that's what i loved at the end of last year i sat down with the bbc and andrew k management and they went right how should we run this thing and i'm going really like Andrew Kay is one of the most successful Aussie producers of the last 20, 30 years. And you know, BBC know their own product and they're going, right, okay, so we're gonna do question and answer session. Should we get audiences to just write down their questions and we pull out the best five? And I went, no, 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 no. these people are paying top dollar. They should, with Peter Davison, we'll just walk around with a microphone and they're going, oh, but can we, can we do that? What if he gets a bad question? What if he gets, no, I'll take care of that all. So like a lot of the things, a lot of the changes that we made to the, to the VIP event was from suggestions I made, which was, quite surprising but um i think it, it paid off and the audiences seemed to enjoy themselves so that was an eye-opening experience but it was a hell of a lot of fun and um yeah it was made me feel like a rock star flying out to a different you know city every weekend for four weeks the matt smith convention they had the raving mics going around the fans were trying to ask questions they put the mic on mute first say it to the usher and yeah. Yep. No worries. And then hand the microphone over. And I think they, on a couple of times, they got dudded. Well, the the Matt Smith con was the prime example of what the BBC are trying to change in many yeah. ways. They're trying to they're trying to compete against these companies who you know can pay top dollar to mm. get the guests in who no longer have a contract with the BBC, and they don't they don't care about the whole experience no. or the show of it. They just want to get their money. And go. Wheel them in, wheel them out. Wheel them in, wheel them out. That's what we got. We got, you know, just episodes playing on a big screen. uh, And then we got 45 minutes and then we're just in line for photos. It was Mm. just, we spent more time waiting around chatting, which is great. But it was a waste of time when there's all this free time, people sitting in their seats just on their phones with the TV playing episodes when they could have had... Alternate programming, panels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, you know, discussing it. They had a little bit of trivia stuff, but it was... So the BBC are specifically going up against those cons and trying to go, what can we do? We have the rights to the show. We have the rights to all this. How can we give them something different? And that's where the uh, the festival has come about, where yeah. they can actually go, we can give you competitive prices, really, for, the, for what you get. Mm. And you get the top stars. You get, you know, you get panels. You get... Um, uh, writing workshops you get monster workshops is Moffat going to the writing workshop I'm not sure I think he needs to sign up <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah that type of stuff the BBC are aware of their competition mm. they're aware of the world and they're aware of how these cons are run and they're trying to match them and mm. give them something more so that the fans you know so that they still go this is our show this is our um, our franchise mm. And do you want to talk about your role, if we can, in the Doctor Who Festival? In yeah, I mean, I'm still, I'm still uh, in negotiation. So it's very, I'm in, in, in the process of talking about being, you know, uh, one of the hosts roving around. So that's as far as I can say. But there's going to be a couple of stages for the whole day. And you, mm. it's a whole experience. It's run over two days, but it's the same program each day. So you only need to go once. You yep. don't need to go twice. Um, and you get the same program every day and there are three stages or four stages, I'm not sure yet, and each stage will have a host and they'll run a certain program all day, uh, which is really exciting. So there's the main stage with Capaldi and all those big events which everyone gets to see and they'll all be programmed at a time so that you can see everything. Yeah. You'll get to see everything that's on offer, which is great. You'll be there at nine in the morning till five at, nine, and you get yeah. to see everything, which yeah. is amazing. Um, 
And so I'll be involved in that way. One of the stages, I'll be uh, fielding questions and making sure the people are having a good time. Let's hope nobody asks uh, Capaldi what his favourite story is or monster. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favourite costume? What's your favourite hairstyle? What was it like to run the first Doctor Who coup in the the early 1970s? I love that stuff. I, I love the fact that he was not just... I think I've already talked about this, but he wasn't just a fan. He was notorious and people like hated him and there's still people who hate him with a venom within the who fandom because he was just trying to take over i want to hear the real stuff i want to hit like when, yeah. when he was on graham norton they read out a letter from the woman who was in charge of uh, publicity yeah. Yeah. yeah and she wrote a letter to the head of doctor who fan club at the time going could we please do something about that peter c because he's just annoying us and we just you know you need to put a stop to him because he's just a terror Out of control and then he's there mm. going where's she now and where am i now i'm yeah. doctor who yeah that's right <laughs> So, Revenge of the Dish, best served. Half warm. Half warm. (laughs) And and in Sydney in November. (laughs) That sort of, you know, childhood behaviour or young adult behaviour leads me to think that Capaldi might stay longer than, say, three years. You know, I hope so. It's glib to say that this might be his dream job, but, you know, at this stage of his career, getting the role, um, you'd, you'd want to hang on to it as long as you could, wouldn't you? You can see how much he's thrown himself into it, as in, from what I've heard, they've gone, okay, well, we need to do this publicity thing, we need to do this online thing, and he's gone, yep, I'll do that, yep, I'll do that, and he's really making himself known to to endear himself to the fans he's not being quite he's not being selective or held back because it was kind of like that within the the Russell T era mm. like Tennant would do appearances but they were very controlled like he'd you know he'd launch the the Christmas lights going on in Cardiff or he'd make the odd appearance here or there but it was very controlled and then Matt Smith came in and he was a lot younger so he could do a lot more so appearing appearing at the you know the proms actually as the doctor which Tennant would never do Tennant did hosted the proms once I think or twice and he just did it as himself um, so to have Capaldi throw himself into the deep end not only doing the ultimate fan experience or the exhibition videos and stuff he's the he's the face of the the YouTube channel he's mm. like he's everywhere he's doing every little bit you know making appearances with with kids no matter what he can you can really see this is a guy who loved it as a kid and as he's openly said he got rid of all his stuff he threw all his stuff out burnt it yeah burned it all when he was at university because he went all artsy and just went I'm you know punk I'm punk now Um, it's that reliving of his youth he's there going this is what I wanted when I was a kid and he's capturing that part of his life that is very important to him and he speaks so beautifully about who and so well about it and to, to convince, you know, uh, Jenna Coleman to stay on another year just because, you know, she wanted to work with him for another year. And that's one of the main reasons. And I believe it. I believe it. You know, who wouldn't want to work with Capaldi for eight months straight and be in every scene with him pretty much and just absorb all that energy and knowledge and creativity and, and power that he has? Anybody see the uh, second trailer for Series 9 yet? I did. What do you think of it, Rob? I like the fact that he's wearing uh, Troughton's pants in one scene. The pants are great, aren't they? <laughs> they are fantastic. He's a, Like Troughton, he's a bit of a pants man by the looks of it <laughs> maybe that'll come out in another 40 years or something yeah. he's, got, he's got a second family or third family drops the money off every Wednesday night <laughs> <He's> giving, <laughs> giving Jenna Coleman a lift home because I've got to stop and drop yeah, the, stop money. the money off um, and he's got the got the velvet jacket as well yeah. but I, what I love about the trailer is that it it gives glimpses it doesn't give away too mm. much and it gives an idea of the tone mm. And that's and that and that's all. It's got a great tone. It's got a good feel, and it hasn't given too much away. And it's not 
or too little has been given away. Um, great shots like the Sunnies and the guitar playing and great little statements of sort of like, this is where your story ends. All these beautiful little moments just to capture that energy of uh, what the show is. Some striking imagery as well. I mean, the, the hands emerging from the, the, the field, uh, the mud-covered field, is uh, it sticks in my mind. Yes. So there's, there's some beautiful imagery there, and it, it gives me a lot of uh, heart and hope for, for, the, for the, the, the upcoming series, certainly. I like how Moffat in Season 8 and with Season 9 has sort of like opened up to bring more young writers in. So there's a lot of people in Season 8 writing Who for the first time, and he's doing that again with Season 9, bringing in some new writers, female writers, finally. Um, and yeah, bringing back the ones who were quite successful and very popular last season are coming back as well. But yeah, really good striking images because that's what it's about really now. The modern Who is more about the visuals, the monsters, the the different feel of each each season to drag people in as opposed to concepts. The concepts kind of get in there a little bit with Listen, a little bit with um, uh, Flatline, but it's all about what image can we have. So the big metal robot creatures the almost lion like uh a aliens as well the 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 dragon coming out all these type of you know the the hand with the eye in it all that type of stuff is you know really visceral type images to to get the people's attention and a complete shock they've got daleks in there <laughs> <laughs> we've all come to expect the daleks it's just how they're handled isn't it yeah um, and again i mean the the visual that we saw there is quite striking you know that that sort of a long a long shot, I suppose you would call it, with filled with dialects and Clara confronting them. So uh, again, I mean, I've got no problem with the dialects coming back year after year, as long as they're written well, as long as the story that they're in is is strong and striking. And that's the main thing, isn't it? We just need good writing. Writing is what Who has always been about. That's why it survived fifty years. You know, the effects uh, they did the best they could with the the money they had, but we stayed because of the stories being mm. so interesting. Um, and I think we kind of got back to that a little bit with season eight. There's some really interesting ideas and concepts explored for the first time in a long time. Um, and not sticking too much to a formula, trying to create something new. And hopefully they carry on with that. And I think they always try, I, f I like to think that they try and they're trying to step up because they've got Capaldi now. They're trying to go, look, okay, we've got to take this seriously. We've got to, you know, we've got an Oscar winning, you know, director, actor, you know, award-winning comedy actor in the show now we gotta you know we've step gotta, it up gotta step it up yeah so he deserves the best he does he does do we mention death in heaven now oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh the 3d version that you can see in the yes, big screen yes. in uh, only in america and i think denmark 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 the lucky danes have got it the lucky danes yes yes let's move on um <laughs> So speaking of Doctor Who companions in New Zealand, yes, uh, you went to a convention and you were hosting the Karen Gillan interviews. Yeah, I've been I've been negotiating with um, uh, William Getters for about three or four years to do some do my uh, Doctor Who show, Who Me, over in um, the in New Zealand for a while. I almost was over there about two years two years ago, and then I uh, ran into him at Armageddon last year and he said okay let's discuss something and we booked it in we booked myself in I was meant to do more than one because he runs about five Armageddons in New Zealand but the only time I was free was for Wellington and I've always wanted to go to Wellington I've only been to um, uh, Auckland and um, bits of the South Island but I hadn't been to Wellington 
You can you, do it all in four hours. Pretty much. Yeah. 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 Um, so I went to Wellington. I loved it there. And I was booked in just to do Who Me on the final day, which was great. Um, and then about a month or so out, quite nonchalantly as Bill does, because you know he's aware of how much power he has, but he, and he loves to flaunt it in a nonchalant way, which I would too if I was in his position. He just said, oh, we'll get you to host the panels. And I went, what? I said, yeah, yeah, we've got Karen there. We've got you there. We may as well get you to do it because I've hosted so many cons about who before. So that was exciting. That was really exciting to actually not only be in the same con as Karen Gillan, but to actually be on stage with her. So I got to meet her the night before, the Friday night at the VIP event. So I was introduced as being the, the host of her panel. So I wasn't just some schlep there going, oh, can we hang out? Um, and that was pa- me. <laughs> um, and her parents were there. So she traveled out with her parents. Yeah. So she could have a bit of time with them. And they were lovely, just down to earth, regular you know, Scottish family. They've just you know, given birth to a superstar. Um, and she's just got this really vague, casual, like nonchalant type of attitude she's just like you know she was just really you know just distracted by anything and she was you know just fascinating to share a stage with her for two for two um two hours um on the first on the first panel i was seven minutes late not that i was counting but i was picked up like half an hour before the panel started and i had to be driven there and the traffic was bad and the backup at the venue was horrible so i'm there going i've got to be at this got to be on this stage so I raced there. Someone was already on stage hosting it who was just hosting all the stages at that time. And so I tag team him off and we went straight into it. So luckily we'd met the night before. So I wasn't there going, hi. And she's there going, um, uh, who are you? Who the heck are you? Yeah, and it was packed. Yeah. So many people there to see Karen because not only has she done big stuff with Who, but also with Guardians of the Galaxy. So yeah. she's in the Marvel Universe now. And her TV show Selfie had a bit of a following as well. So, so yeah, she's just this incredible presence uh, on stage and she's just accepts everything you say. So I'd go off on a, on a comedy tangent and she'd accept it and go with it. Um, and she got weird, the usual questions of what's your favorite monster? What's your favorite story? Who would you pick? Who's, who would the doctor be that you would travel with who isn't Matt Smith? And you know, who, who would you choose between the doctor or Rory? Um, then she got really interesting stuff like, um, you know, what do you think about Scottish independence? And so she got all political at the time, which was great. She showed some dance moves, so I got to do some dance stuff with her. What dance moves was she doing? Uh, well, she talks about the fact that when she goes dancing, she has this particular move that she does with her friends. Like They walk across the stage and then randomly without talking, they'd like do this, this almost leg split type of weird stance and they just stand there and talk. <sighs> it's a... <laughs> It's all online. It's been it's been bootleg copied and it's on online. I'll do links to it. You can see me do the splits as well. Oh, why not? It's kind of hot. Um, not really. Um, so yeah, but she was just great to talk with and sit down with. And I tried tried to balance it out because I didn't want to be one of those people who sits there just go yeah let's just chat all the time all the mm-hmm. time. She wanted some time to herself, but um, yeah, she was really friendly and lovely, and she was really interested to hear more about my, my about who me. And I showed her a publicity image and she goes, oh my God, you look just like David Tennant. And I went, yes, he does look like me. Um, <laughs> but her parents were lovely and we had a lot of you know great chats and we talked about Who because her mum's a massive Who fan so mm. from the early days. So we just had talked about John Pertwee and Tom Baker and all that type of stuff. So that was really good and I got a lot of great positive feedback and uh, I made her laugh on stage. I made the audience laugh. And so that's what you want to do. You don't want to get the regular type of people up there trying to just... You know, show how important they are, and just be really 
dull and boring. And get their facts wrong. <laughs> yes. I made it very, very clear that I will get all my facts right. Mm. Um, and it was, yeah, just a wonderful experience. And then I got to do Who Me in front of uh, about 200 people and they'd never seen the show before. And it was just amazing experience. And just to feel like a you know a superstar for a, for just a weekend. And then got to see Ant-Man for free in 3D. Oh, very good. I did an impro comedy show as well with Dean Hagelin from The X-Files because he's a stand-up uh, impro guy from the past. So we did this impro night comedy night with a couple of local stand-ups on the Saturday night. So it was, yes, this weird but wonderful uh, weekend of just convention but different type of things to just a usual convention. Hanging out with Karen Gillan and her family for a bit. And I got to talk to Ted DiBiase, the million-dollar man from wrestling. I grew up with Ted DiBiase. And I'm there talking about films and how, like, you know, he's there going, there are no original scripts anymore and there should be more original drama and less remaking a franchise and I'm going yes Ted DiBiase I agree with you yeah I agree with you totally please don't body slam me (laughs) (laughs) how do you find the New Zealand fans compared to the Australian fans Rob they're very similar actually they're very very much the same it's that whole thing of but they like to be a bit more possessive than not they like to say that they're more possessive than Australian fans that they have more right to it than Aussie fans which I kind of find interesting because it was shown in New Zealand before Australia so they, they never they never let me forget that um, and also because I was in Wellington, so we went to Weta as well, which was the studio of where they do all the CGI effects and all the you know the props and costumes for for the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit films. And so, of course, Peter Jackson is a huge Doctor Who fan as well. So it was, the, Wellington has this vibe and this air of geek culture and pop culture all around it. Um, but the fan, yeah, the fans are you know very much like australian fans they're very passionate very supportive love dressing up in cosplay but they don't have that earnestness that uh, american fans do or smugness of, of british fans I'm, I'm sorry if i'm offending any of our british fans there but when i was in the uk doing um who me in edinburgh there was this very much smug possession of doctor who in the uk going it's our show we know what we're doing whereas in australia and new zealand because we have to work so hard to get any type of stuff, especially when we were growing up, mm. you know, Doctor Who was repeated very rarely, and you know we didn't get much new material, so we'd have to work even harder to get it. And especially when the new series started, you know, it was screened six months later. So there's this: we don't take anything for granted. That's what I like about Doctor Who and Doctor Who fans in Australia and New Zealand is that we are really, really excited when we get a, a you know a regular cast member out, an old cast member out. We really are quite passionate and we don't, we 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 are really gracious of it not so blasé not so blasé mm, yeah, yeah. I, I was at a con in uh chicago and all the american fans were just yeah yeah matt smith and karen gillen are here yeah sure whatever i'm going are you kidding me if we got yeah with the australian fans at the con when we went to with matt and karen there we were just so excited so mm. eager to see them there all the young fans and even the parents and even us old farts were a bit you know excited to see we were them. a bit uh, starry-eyed weren't starry-eyed yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, being in the same space as Alex Kingston. So, yeah, we've got a lot more appreciation because it's 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 not as easy for us to get stuff out here in Australia. Um, it is, and New Zealand, much so now, we're a lot easier to get stuff because it's all online. But, um, yeah, we've still got that inherent appreciation because it was so much of a struggle for us. Before we move on, what sort of approach did you take to, to chatting or, or, or interviewing Karen Gillan? I mean... You never obviously you never met her before, so how, how did you sort of get yourself in the right headspace for that? I don't like to be one of those hosts who push it 
And because because she's such a big star, when you've got big stars like that, the audience want to ask questions. So I kind of lead by them. I like to refer to the audience a lot and get questions off them quickly. And so I use that as a springboard as for comedy to get the laughter going. So if, if a question doesn't really make sense or if it's more of a statement or if someone says something a bit awkward, I can use that as com- as a comedy foil to make fun of it or to find a joke and that relaxes everybody and then Karen can ask a question or answer the question or that can inspire me to lead in deeper into a question because I can go because the usual stuff like what's your favorite monster what's your favorite article of clothing you know who would you know who would you marry out of all those companions she's answered 150 times 150 million times and she knows what to do but to take that and then go well actually let's look at the process of how did you guys get on so well what type of things did you do behind the scenes so you can find out little gems and that leads into stories because she's got all these stories that she likes sharing and she may not have shared it at this con or and she goes no one's ever asked that question that's the type of stuff i love when mm. i when i get when i get a response from her going oh that's really interesting i've never been asked that before that's when i've done something right um and to hear a story going you've never and to go to an audience in new zealand you've never heard this story before let me tell you for the first time and they go people go oh okay mm. this is and they don't even realize that they go oh that's right we could probably think harder about questions and we can get something we've never heard before as opposed to people just going i just want to ask something i just want to ask her something i just want to get off on stage and go and that's fine that's totally fine that you just want to have that connection but after fielding those questions and I don't want to be one of those people like at some cons who field it and go no we're not going to have that question to go okay let's take that question let's get what we can out of it work with that get rid of any awkwardness and then move forward it's it's a it's a it's a weird thing that you only pick up the more you interview people and the more you are on stages that you find out what works what doesn't work what convention guests could do is uh when they get on the stage say right whoever asks me the best question We'll get a cup of coffee with me or something like you know what I mean? Yeah, As yeah, opposed yeah. to getting a poor old Colin Baker going, What's your favourite monster? You know, what's your, what's your favourite story, Colin? It wasn't Twin Dilemma. You yeah. Know, and things like that. Just to get or even, just to try something a bit different. Or even at the con that we went to where mm. the where, you know, people are asking Colin Baker about, you know, can you give us your opinion on Jimmy Savile? Oh where yeah. You, where, where, where the entire yeah. audience, uh, this was at Lords of Time One, when someone clearly just wanted to be noticed and mm. wanted to say something controversial not for Colin Baker just for themselves and so to ask a question like yeah this stuff with Jimmy Savile's just come out and because he did Jimmy will fix it back in the 80s um, and there was no point to it there was no, no point other than just to that guy to feel um, some sense of power or control or say he knew something and the audience immediately turned and Colin Baker dealt with it well um, because he's you know a professional and that's all he does for for money now really. It got tense, didn't it? It did get tense. Yeah. It was and Colin Baker you know lightened the mood by going, I'm not going to talk about it, um, and so he brought the mood back. But it shouldn't be in the the responsibility of the guests to do that. There should be someone on the stage negotiating and dictating. And even if there was someone on stage going, that's you know we can't really talk about that. Thanks very much. Can we get the next question? Yeah. As opposed to just leaving it for the stars yeah. on stage to deal with themselves mm. and having something like that. Yeah, them going. Okay, I get these questions all the time. Yep. Let's get something a bit interesting, Correct. and you know you'll get something out of it. Then the fans, the rabid fans, and the competitive nature of fandom would just you know yeah. would work even harder to find something unique for each show. That's what I want when I'm hosting a panel. I want something unique mm. each each day because some people come back for for the panel twice. Some people are just doing it for the first time because the one we saw with Matt Smith and Karen Gillan and uh, Alex Kingston there was nothing unique there was nothing that stood out no it was just there was no moment where I went 
I will never see that at any other con. It was just a case of it's the same questions, the same answers. They just did the same thing. Even when you know, he got up and he did the drunken giraffe or when he's done that at a million cons, I want to create a moment on stage that those people who are there will go, I was there for that. Their anecdotes now becoming everybody turned around and we're all wearing an eye patch. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Like it's yes. all getting very, very same. And We've similar. heard that. We've yeah, heard yeah, it before yeah. and there's no, uh, as you said, it's felt scripted. Yeah, so to have... Yeah, that's what my mission as a host really is, Rob, is to, to give to give the audience something different. And the and the and the guests as well, so they do something that they wouldn't so they walk off going, Wow, that was fun or that was oh I never expected to do that. Mm. So like on the first panel we had Karen did an impression. She only does one impression and that's of a um oh God, what is it? Um, some weird animal she does an impression of and so she did that on stage and then the second day she did her um, her dance routine so she said oh, I'll do this dance I said well let's get up and do it let's do it and she showed me how to do it and so that had never been done before and her animal impression had never been done before as well I think it was a frog or something um, some really odd creature so that's that's what I want to do when I host cons is to give something unique Now, speaking of doing something differently, your next show, which is coming out in September, is about Star Wars. It is. It is. It's part three of my nerd trilogy. Uh, The second part being Who Me, which I've been doing for about four years now. And part one uh, was about Sherlock Holmes, Study in Scarlet. So Study in Scarlet was done in 2010. Who Me was done in 2011. And I haven't done part three for a while. I've been kind of debating whether I'd do it or not. And... Um, I just came to the point where, well, I need to do it. And this was the year to do it because the new Star Wars film was obviously coming out in December and I felt ready to, to, to tackle part three so I can not put my nerd, um, my nerd comedy stuff to, to bed because I think it's always going to be there for me. But I can put an end to that chapter of my life and I can move on to do other type of shows mm. uh, that still will have nerd influences in it, but not as heavily structured. Mm. Um, or at least not under the guise of... There's always been a connection with, with all my fandoms. So I mentioned Star Wars and Doctor Who in in uh, my Sherlock Holmes show. I mentioned Doctor Who and Sherlock. And I have Sherlock Holmes appear in Who Me. I I have uh, Star Wars a main plot point in Who Me. So to connect them all together. So it is a part of this trilogy. I'm just trying not to make it like The Godfather Part 3. Or the Canetto trilogy. Or the, <laughs> I want to make it like the Canetto trilogy. Because mm. for me, I love the Canetto trilogy. I think all three films are perfect in their own right. Mm. Anyone who doesn't like World's End, um, really. The is, soundtrack's awesome. The soundtrack's incredible. They did miss out one song, though. Which, which one? I think it was... Keep talking. <laughs> so, I um, what it is. So yeah, part three is dealing with my first ever nerdy obsession, which was Star Wars. So I was into Sherlock Holmes in high school. I was into Doctor Who in university and right up till now. And then I thought I'd go back to the start with part three and deal with when I was you know, five or six years old, when I first saw Star Wars and what that meant for me and how that changed my life. And it really did. Up until that point, I had no real idea of imagination or creativity or anything like that. I was just, you know, but Star Wars opened my eyes into what was possible. Um, and so I deal with that. And so the structure of it is kind of like a romantic comedy in some ways, because Star Wars was my first love. We were together for a long time and then, you know, we broke up 
but then it came back into my life when I was, you know, when I was having struggles with my current fandom, uh, Doctor Who. So then I, we kind of got back together with the with the, the prequels, and that didn't turn out well. And so it's kind of like the structure of a romantic comedy, which I've taken on board, and I try and do something different with each show. So Who Who Me was set up in a trial. The Sherlock Holmes show was me retelling the first ever Sherlock Holmes story, Study in Scarlet, whereas this one, it's the structure of a romantic comedy. So I've hired um, a young actress by the name of uh, Jennifer Spires, and she's incredible. She's amazing, and she's going to be on stage with me. So I've written this script, and I was writing it. As I was writing it, I'm going, yeah, this will just be me. I'll play all these roles. And then I got to this point where I went, it actually would be better if this role was played by somebody else. And if I got someone in to play these two roles... Um, and so yeah she's gonna step up and we've been rehearsing for a couple of weeks now and we've done two fully fledged rehearsals and they're just really it's really popping along and she's really bringing the script to life and we've got this great energy together so um, I'm a big fan of, of her and I'm really looking forward to presenting this show on stage with her in um, in September how do you find the experience of going from uh, I suppose a one man show to a two hander have you worked that no it's been it's been really interesting actually because um, I've been really struggling with the structure of this show how I wanted to do it I wanted to at one point to do it more as just stand up and stories but then this idea came about and it just flowed and so now it's turned more into a play really I've got breakout moments where I talk to the audience but it's mostly mostly me on stage with this actress and so to shift that because I've done a lot of plays and improvisation before so I'm used to working with other people which I love so to get that energy and so I feed off her um, stage presence and her confidence and she's a huge Star Wars fan as well and she um, so we talk about that and my director so we've got this unit now we've done two rehearsals and I've got Jen there I've got my director there I'm there and my producer so I've worked I did who me and my Sherlock Holmes show just with Scott Gooding uh, was just me and him but now I've got this almost company of the four of us are at rehearsals all the time and we're sharing ideas and we're seeing each other and we're inspiring each other so for me that's very good where stand-up can be a very lonely uh, profession especially the comedy industry so to have this support group has been really exciting and it's really inspired me to explore the subtleties of the characters and and the storyline and get it across and it helps me take away any self-indulgence that might be there with me just talking about myself for an hour which I always feel guilty about do you see your Doctor Who work being a hindrance or help when you're trying to do new works like the Star Wars piece and and whatever comes about in the future yeah it's like a lot of people a lot of bitter people we kind of do that and I hear that all the time if people get a success off one particular thing and then they ride on that and then they can't venture out anywhere else Mm. um it doesn't frustrate me I'm aware of it and I'm mm. aware of how people are pigeonholed and, you know one of my biggest idols is uh, Jim Henson and he tried so hard to break out of his mold of just being the kid guy doing funny kid shows when I went you know puppetry was never meant to be just for kids it was meant to be it was an art form and so he worked so hard to break out of that mold with the Dark Crystal Labyrinth Fraggle Rock you know Sesame Street The Muppet Show um, Jim Henson hour he explored all these avenues and getting the creature shop to do you know legitimate shows like he, he worked on uh, Dennis Potter's Dream Child which was about Alice from Alice in Wonderland when she grew up because she was actually based on a real girl when she was old and she moved back to New York uh, she moved to New York and the press just went to town on her and so there was these dream sequences with Jim Henson's puppets so I use that as my inspiration if he struggled he, he still embraced the, the Muppet stuff 
in his life, but he just powered on with other stuff he loves. So who's always going to be with me? It's mm. where I've got my big... I wouldn't say success, but I've got most of my recognition mm. from Who. So, and I'm going to do Who as much as I can because I love Doctor Who. I mm. love talking about Doctor Who. I love talking about in a comedy sense. I love talking about it in you know a serious sense. I love sitting down and going, no, let's discuss what is so good about um, John John Pertwee's first season, and let's talk about what's so bad about. Um, uh, Tom Baker's second last season. But oh, it's not that bad. <laughs> I knew. I just said that, I said that just for Mark. But yeah, I don't see I don't see it as a hindrance. I see it as just a reality that I face, mm. and so that people. But this is the thing on face. Uh, even today, um, I've been posted. I used to get anything Doctor Who related online. I used to get shared on my Facebook page. People going, thought you'd like this, thought you'd mm. like that. Whether it's a meme or whether it's a new action figure or whether it's a new weird thing that's coming out. And now, because I've started promoting my Star Wars show, I'm getting that now. Mm. So I've been, I think I've got about three links on my Facebook page just today about this link to this father who's made a, a, a rocking horse, but it's in the shape Speed, of the, uh, the speeder. Speed, yeah. So, and he's got his daughter dressed up as Princess Leia. Mm. So I've got that like three times on my page just this day. So I love that. I love people. I can't deny that. I can't be bitter about the fact that people connect me with a certain thing and they want to share their love of that with me. Mm. And that's a way for me to connect with them and they will stay with me. I want people to be able to stay with me as follow me in any way. I don't want to use the word fans, but they want to follow me, support me, come see my shows. So, and I'll always have who there, but it doesn't mean I can't go out and do other stuff. And so I struggled at a comedy festival this year in 2015 because I did two shows that weren't even remotely connected with Doctor Who. And um, I kind of got lost within the crowd, but I was happy with the shows and the feedback was great. And those people who uh, supported me came out and I had a lot of Doctor Who fans come out and see the show, um, which I didn't think they would. They said, yeah, we're going to come see you despite the fact that it's not Doctor Who. Yeah. And you slipped in the Omni rumor into there. Yeah, <laughs> of course I did. I'm always going to chuck something in there. People yeah. go, oh, you got a Doctor Who reference in there. I said, well, that's my choice, mm. but I'm not selling the show as yeah. another Doctor Who thing. Yeah. It'd be foolhardy of me to be bitter about that and and lash out against it because i wouldn't have got the recognition i've had or the opportunities i have mm. if it wasn't for my love of doctor who and what it's given me so it doesn't mean i have to stay with it mm. all the time it's going to be there forever but i can go off and do other things mm. which i'm which is which is a good freedom to have i'm just going to ask rob uh, because because I know very little about comedy except how to laugh. That's good. Just with, just with regards, to, you you said that before. I think that your your roots are in improv. Yes. Is that correct? So obviously the energy from improv comes from the fact that it's basically a high wire act without any netting. Would that be well, right? That's what I like to see it as. Yeah. Where do you find the energy um, or the inspiration uh, for a scripted performance? Where does that come from for you? If I'm asking the question correctly, each show varies on how the process is. With who me, it was very much. We came up with ideas and my director and I, Scott Gooding, brainstormed. So we recorded everything, every single session and we'd brainstorm ideas and we'd just go off on riffs and I'd just break into characters and we'd just, just ramble. And then I'd go back and listen to it and take a key line or a key character or a key moment and I'd fill the script that way. Whereas the show before Sherlock Holmes was very scripted is that we took the original storyline and we ripped it down to its basics and turned that into a script and then had occasional breakouts. But with this one, I was struggling so much to find a structure. And I sat down with my friend, uh, David Innes, who I do uh, Innes Lloyd with, um, uh, of course, based on the 60s producer. John um, Wiles. Verity <laughs> <laughs> um, Lambert. Um, and so... We, yeah, I, I work more in 
brainstorming and improvising ideas, which I, you know, which I love doing on stage. And we just brainstorm this. How about this? How about this works? How about that works? And then I turn that. But for for this Sherlock, uh, for this Star Wars show, I had to sit down. I had the idea. I had the structure with David. And we broke it down into twelve scenes, and then I had to sit down during the holidays and I had a week. I had one week to write this script. I had to write. 12 scenes in five days really and so I had to sit down like a writer with the laptop open just me and my thoughts um, and but of course it's not just you and your thoughts it's you and your entire brain so it's all your insecurities all your doubts all your angers all your fears mm. all your you know all this type of stuff creeps in and goes oh there's a blank stage I'll just get in front of your mind's eye and start performing in front of you but I had to sit down and nut out this script and actually write it like a screenplay which I'd never done before um, and that was a really challenging experience to sit down and do something new, which I want to do. Every single show I want to do, want to challenge myself. So I'm more like collaborating. So I, lo- I like sharing people's ideas and go, that's a good idea, work off that way. I don't like just being in a vacuum, sitting down and writing a script like a lot of uh, stand-up comics like to do. I like the collective um, appeal of uh, improvisation and you know script writing. With, with a group. Which comedians do you take your inspiration from? Quite a lot, actually. I'm, I'm kind of a, a slut when it comes to comedy. I love so much of it. Like, I love... Um, I, I grew up on... My parents grew me up on the two Ronnies, and later in life I got into, the, into uh, Monty Python. Um, but my biggest influence when I was a kid was the Muppets. I mean, that they taught me everything about comedy. If, if I'm still... My performance style is heavily influenced by, you know... Fuzzy Bear, by Fuzzy Bear, by by um, by uh, Kermit the Frog, all those type of characters. I learnt comedy from 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 them, and they had some amazing writers on there. You know, Jerry Jewell, uh, Frank Oz, Jim Mm. Henson. They're incredible writers. You know, Chris Langham before he you know went off the deep end. Uh, he wrote for them back when he was a young writer in the in his twenties. So and then that matured. So when I got into high school, I was introduced to Australian comedy for the first time like good Australian comedy like uh, The Late Show when I watched mm. that I was you know when I was a kid so Rob Sitch Santo Chilaro Tony Martin all those guys they introduced me to a new form of comedy which is Australian comedy what was happening in the pubs and clubs at that time new form of sketch comedy as well and so that then led into uh, finding Lena Woodley and Lena Woodley a big influence on me as well so these all sort of like snowball effect and then they introduced me into other you know classic comedy so I watched you know Buster Keaton for the first time and I got into his style of comedy and that led me into Harold Lloyd. Harold Lloyd got me into um, people like, you know, the Marx Brothers and they got me into Laurel and Hardy. Then that led me into um, Phil Silvers. Phil Silvers is incredible and um, Jack Benny. And then, of course, there was the introduction into um, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, which led into Steve Carell. And there's always been Robin Williams and uh, Jim Carrey. So it's sort of like this just snowball of comedians. And then more recently, Dave Gorman is a big influence of mine with the structure of my shows and his PowerPoint presentation of comedy. So it's this snowball effect that leads in, like Whose Lines It Anyway is a big influence. So you're looking at your Ryan Stiles, your Colin Mockries, but also British comedians like Josie Lawrence. She's an amazing improviser. So I can't really limit it to one influence it's just the snowball effect and they're just all these incredible variety of comedians and their approach to comedy that i kind of try and take on board 
in whatever I do. What's the Australian comedy scene like today? I mean, I know I have similar... When I was growing up, you know, The Late Show, D-Gen, the shows like that, The Big Gig. I was listening to an interview with... A, uh, watching an interview last night with a lady who hosted The Big Gig and it just brought back a whole flood of memories. Um, Jane Kitson, yes. Um, and The Big Gig was just memorable. I mean, it introduced me to Doug Anthony All-Stars. Just a whole cavalcade of Australian talent, which was wonderful to see on the ABC back then. Do you want to tell you a story about what happened to me at the Doug Anthony All-Stars? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> I went and saw them live, I think it was in the early 90s, and uh, let's just say uh, Paul McDermott had a couple of drinks beforehand and got on stage. He does a routine where he goes out in the audience and finds a new uh, lover. Yes. And of course, he gets picked out in this audience and he's trying to snog me. I was pushing him back and my wife was punching him up as well. And he a stank of booze and cigarettes. and uh, But of course, the more I was reacting to him and pushing him away, the more he was just going for it, or trying to anyway. All night, he just kept flicking his tongue out at me and blowing me kisses. I got to interview uh, Tim Ferguson on my TV show on Channel 31, Live on Bowen. Very, very gracious, very patient man. We talked about Doctor Who because he toured with um, Inside the TARDIS. He did. Tour. Mm. Um, did he get his money? No, um, I think he did. He was the only one who did. He's the only one who did, yeah. Um, We talked about Star Wars as well, and both from country towns in New South Wales before he moved to Canberra. So, and then he followed me on Twitter and he just, he retweets my stuff sometimes. And during Comedy Festival, when I was doing Rob Lloyd versus the Monsters, Hmm. I was really struggling to get crowds because it wasn't Doctor Who related. And he did a post about my show. He does it about, he did it about quite a few comedians that he liked and stuff, but he said, go see Rob Lloyd's show. So to have a Doug Anthony All-Star do it, I didn't prompt him or anything like that. It was just, I haven't been face-to-face with him for about two years, but he's always keeping an eye on me, which I really appreciate. Because I didn't, I missed the big gig. The, um, I've gone back and seen the stuff of the, the Dugs later. I, I wasn't into them. I got into The Late Show. That was my big bit of Australian comedy. But I've seen that influence. And the Australian comedy scene is okay at the moment. I think it's a bit too... Bogan heavy? Bogan heavy, but it's also controlled by one or two um, talent companies. And back of the days of... The 80s and the early 90s was a lot more broader scope, and so you could have a wide range of comedy so you could have your bogan stand-ups but you could also have quite surreal stuff you could have you know the found objects of what landon woodley were before you could have the dugs you could have gene kitson you could have anthony Aykroyd. you could have you know anthony morgan all these you know even you know tony martin mick malloy all those guys doing this wide wide variety of stuff but it's become a little bit homogenized now it's kind of been controlled by uh one or two popular production companies and so they present the comedy that they want which is all very similar so it's young funky looking you know quirky type of guys and girls doing the same type of comedy over and over again and there's not that much variety or um uh substance in many ways but that's me probably being a bit bitter and twisted but um but people are aware of Australian comedy now, which is good. And there are young people out there who know Australian comedians, young Australian comedians and popular comedians, and they like going out and seeing it. You know, Joel Creasley got a lot of big success because of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which is great. And that really helped him as with his comedy style because he was quite one note. Um, you know, Celia Bacola is doing incredibly good work. Luke McGregor is an amazing young comedian. And they're doing not just stand-up, but also acting work as well with Working Dog. So the, the talent is there, you know, Sammy J and, um, and uh, Randy, they're really big as well. So there's a great range of talent out there, which is starting to, you know, break out of that homogenized type of comedy, which was so dominant in the, uh, the noughties. 
it was just from 2000 to 2010 that era was just dominated by all the same type of comedians and all the same type of comedy Mm. which it still is but there's little cracks coming through which I hope you know there has to be a revolution at some point it's a shame they don't have shows like The Late Show anymore no, well, no. they've tried it a yeah. number of times, but failed. it just doesn't work. Like the yeah. the chasers tried it, and they and they just failed. And they've tried to do you know live shows like Saturday Night Live, and everyone like Let Loose Live or all that type of stuff. And the sketch comedy is still quite dated because it's just they're not willing to try something different. Or when they try something different, it's token and quite you know you know empty and vacuous. I thought Skit House was terrible. I prefer the sketch show, the UK one, but not but not Skit House. Sketch show is great, and that had Kitty yeah. Flanagan in it. Yeah, a great Australian yeah. comedian. Yeah, I think she was the second season. I think mm-hmm. there was Ronnie Anaconda beforehand. Yeah, and Lee Mack. Yeah, Lee um, Mack's great. Lee Mack. He's on. Um, I watch him on. Uh, what's it? Uh, won't, uh, won't go out. Don't go out. No, he's on. Uh, Never mind the Buscocks, because I quite like that show. And will I lie to you? Will I lie to you as yeah. well? Yeah, yeah. Lee Mack. Check him out. Steve Coogan? I saw Steve Coogan live at, um, before when he came out for Comedy Festival. Yeah, yeah I saw it yeah, as well. Yeah. That was, that was uh, yeah, a bit blue. It was great, though. It was fantastic. It was great. Yeah, his final song about how, that he's a... Uh, um, yeah. 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 We won't mention the, the word yeah. that he used. Starts with C, yeah. ends with T. Got United Nations in the middle. See you next Tuesday. I think we yeah, all know what we're talking yeah. about. Yes. There you go. We're on the right page. That came out at work last week, so that's all right. We can use that on this. <laughs> that was a great gig, though, that Coogan gig. Sorry. That was an amazing gig. Yeah. yeah. Um, just to see him on stage and just the arrogance that he has. He is such an arrogant man. And it works for him. Yeah. Australian comedy is, 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 is in a healthy position and people are going out... And seeing Australian comedians, we just need to open it up a bit more. And, and but that's always the struggle, especially during comedy festival. They they promote the international guests so much, mm. and there's so much young talent out there, the local talent that needs to be supported. But you just get lost in the crowd. There yeah. were 600 shows in comedy festival this year. No one's going to get a chance to see everything. No. With comedy audiences, are they are they going? I mean, obviously they're going there for a laugh. But are they going there to you know escape their cares and troubles? Yeah, it, dep- it depends on um, wh- who they're going to go see, really. I mean, there's there's waves of what type of comedy is big. Like in the early noughties, it was more, you know, your Dave Hughes became really, really popular, so everyone was doing more observational type of larrikin at the pub comedy. Then it ventured more into uh, musical comedy. It was quite big at the time, so uh, Tripod became huge, and, oh, yes. and then Paul McDermott joined Gud Up, um, and everyone was doing musical comedy, and then they got into this whole whimsy state. So, like more like the, the early stages of hipster comedy, really, like the Bedroom Philosopher and um, Josh Earl, and all these comedians with a bit more of a whimsical type of approach to comedy, and more light-hearted, positive air about things. Very influenced by Dimitri Martin, who was very huge a couple of years ago. Then it got into this nerd phase of comedy, which um, is kind of phased out, but it's still there quite strong. Just trying to break out from, you know, the the gimmick of doing, you know, pub comedy. Um, so, but yeah, most people come to comedy nowadays to... We don't have a strong culture in Australia of political comedy. We, we have very famous political comedians, like Rod Quantock is one of the greats of all time, you know, and the Mavis Branford's... Uh, Bransford show was very topical at the time uh, so it is there this rich political comedy history but it's not as celebrated from mainstream culture we like to just have the larrikin comedy mm. or we like to have um, you know you know, fun based comedy 
whereas uh, you know in America they celebrate the the political comedy Absolutely. Like, and John, the yeah. and the UK as well it's yeah. savage it's, political yeah. comedy. Why do you need that here? Yeah, it's I've kind of try and find the balance, like because I, I kind of John Oliver. Oh, Oliver's amazing. Yeah, Oliver's he's incredible. Great. Yeah, he's great. yeah, Oliver's great, and and um and Colbert and John Stewart mm. are amazing. What they do in America, but in America, British comedy I've noticed is they do have strong political comedy, like Have I Got News for You and um, The Last Leg and stuff like that, which is good. But their comedy is very savage. So if you look at their panel shows, like Buzzcocks, like um, Would I Lie to You, it's very vicious, very mm. bitter, very making fun of each other and bagging out people, which I kind of... Especially Noel Fielding. Oh, let's not talk about Noel Fielding. Um, <laughs> but I kind of, yeah, I kind of like that positive air of comedy. And I think comedy can challenge and change and should be a reflection of things that's wrong in society you use comedy to do that you know comedy comedians are the warriors they up there in the front line dealing with stuff that people don't want to talk about you know louis ck is one of the big advocates of challenging people's views through comedy um uh but yeah most people in australia comedy just want to go for yeah it's more escapism there are comedians pushing the boundaries and trying to be more daring um but mostly on the most part audiences just want to go and you know you know lose their mind for for an hour and not think about the worries that they have at home or you know especially with our current political state we kind of you know laugh so much you know if we don't laugh we'll cry and we just switch our mind off for an hour and not think about it that's what i try and do with my comedy at least i try and do the comedy that i find funny and i find people who you know have a similar type of humor will find me Rob, your Star Wars show, it's uh, September? Yes, it yes. Is. September 18, I open. Excellent. Now, <laughs> my Rob, uh, not in the physical term, but... Yeah, definitely not in the physical sense. <laughs> on the Skype term, what are your Star Wars memories? Did you go and see Star Wars when it came out, and what are your memories of the other films? My parents took me to see Star Wars at the drive-in when oh, it came out. I have, that's great. I have a distinct... So I'm assuming it screened in, in Australia in 77, 78, so I would have been six or seven. So I have a distinct memory of you know, my parents taking me to, to see it. I, I have no recollection of actually watching it. But I mean, I mean, some of the memories I have from the movie itself are the, the scene in the in the uh, the waste disposal area and stuff like that. And my mother took me to watch uh, Empire when it screened at the cinema. So my, my mother my mother has no time for science fiction. So um, it, for her, it would have been you know, well, my son wants to go see this. So I, I appreciate that she did that for me. But uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just obviously it was a movie or set of movies that sort of changed the tone of science fiction forever. And what people expected from science fiction, and as we know, it sort of adversely impacted upon Doctor Who. But, yeah, uh, I mean, my my memories. I went like like people do with Doctor Who. I went through a phase with with Star Wars. Uh, helped no doubt because I was working in a science fiction shop in the in the nineties and was dealing with Star Wars fans on a daily basis. Where I just sort of, I, <laughs> it it became anathema to me, and I had nothing to do with it. Yeah, but um, I mean, you know. I went and watched the the prequels when they came out. I went to the midnight screenings for God knows what what reason, but uh, I can certainly appreciate the position that Star Wars has within within science fiction, and and certainly, I mean, those first three movies are are iconic, and 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 there's a reason why they're so beloved of people of a particular generation. Definitely, yeah, and it's it's 
really spoke to a generation and that's why it's carried on for so long and it's still you know people hear a piece of music or they see a certain scene or they quote a certain line and it just takes them right back to that certain moment that they were when they were young well it's funny because every time i see the when the star wars trailers came out for the for the new movie for the force awakens i was watching it and the music swells up and the the, the ships I, i got choked up Mm, you know, yeah, I just I yeah. just felt choked up, and I'm sure it's just nostalgia for my lost youth and all that sort of thing. But you know, seeing um, Harrison Ford, you know, and uh, and um, Chewie, uh, just sort of you know come come onto the screen there, and I thought, Ooh, I don't know, I just just I, there's something swelled in me in my chest. Yeah. I, I totally get it. I was actually choking when I saw Phantom Menace. So <laughs> when I saw the Force Awakens trailer. Uh, you're right, I was getting a little bit uh, teary as well. A bit like seeing Peter Davison in Dimensions in Time. I got a bit teary about that. <laughs> you were crying long before Peter Davison showed up. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the sound of the X-Wings, the sound yeah. of the lightsaber going on, the hearing Luke's Luke and um, Han's voice, hmm. and just seeing familiar things, like seeing a, a crumbled, destroyed Star Destroyer in the background or an yeah. X-Wing crumbled, those type of things you that you're familiar with and you take home and you go well we've only got it in these three moments but then to have it come back again you go oh okay this is mm. you know this is the world continuing on and it does feel like a door's been opened and you're walking into you know Narnia or something like that to go back into a space that you feel familiar with and my Star Wars memories thank you very much for asking <laughs> but, uh, I went to Star Wars in the UK 1977 I remember uh, my brother had to sit in the car with my grandparents because he was too small he was only three so they wouldn't let him in and we got there halfway through the Tatooine scene so we started watching it from the Tatooine scene all the way to the end and in those days the film used to start up straight away again so we watched it again right up to the Tatooine scene then left oh my god really (laughs) and I never saw Empire until 1985. Really? We missed it in the cinema, I think, because we were moving over here. I had the book, the Marvel uh, comic adaption yeah. of it. I had that. And when Return of the Jedi came on, uh, my mum actually took me out of school. God bless her. Uh, that day to go and see it. And then the next day, we had it on pirated video at Scouts. Hey. So that was saw it again. And then I was invited to the drive-ins to see it. I had uh, Return of the Jedi, then Empire Strikes Back. I thought, brilliant, I'm finally going to see it. I fell asleep. So it wasn't until 1985 on VHS I saw Empire Strikes Back and the less said about the prequels the better. (laughs) But look, I understand the prequels if I was 8 seeing them I would have loved it. But, nah. Yeah, well that's kind of what I deal with in The Heart Awakens. That's what my show's called, The Heart Awakens. Is that it deals with where I was when I was a child and when I first got into Star Wars and how it inspired me and influenced me and you know was this major influence in my life and then how it came back into my life in my 20s with the prequels and how it changed and altered and now how it's kind of coming back into my life now and these big stages of my life when I was just in my developmental stage and was when I was in my next deciding where I go on with my life and now you know however many years later I've you know set in my ways with my life and where I'm happy with and where do I go now mm. in the next you know, stage of my life so Star Wars is always there at the big key moments mm. like Saturn Returns I think with the prequels it would have been better received if George Lucas hadn't directed them oh yeah I'll be honest with you I remember watching a documentary I think it was on 60 Minutes where they're showing him uh, doing you know his behind the scenes magic and he had like a little laser point he said we've got a CGI this bit CGI this bit and I'm going how about actually directing the actors mate yeah 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 you should have actually 
let other people direct those films because I don't, I don't think he's actually a very good director in my opinion look he was I think I think American Graffiti is oh, American Graffiti yeah, American she, Graffiti yeah. is directed beautifully yeah. and he gets really good stuff out of the young cast mm. um, but they kind of work together Star Wars we, there's notorious stories about you know the only direction he gave was faster more intense yeah, um, but but he cast very talented actors who could look after themselves. Mm. Like Harrison Ford, just he let Harrison Ford do whatever he wanted, and that's what Harrison Ford was incredible for. Mm. Carrie Fisher was very strong in her own right. She didn't, oh, she wasn't aware of it at the time, but she could she just dominated the space. And Hamill was very good as well, and he learned a lot from being mentor. And it was a smart decision, you know, mentoring him up with Alec Guinness. Yeah. So you hear story. Yeah, you know, he talks about that Guinness just told him stories all the time and took him under his wing. So that was a very smart move from from um, from George Lucas to cast people who he knew they could look after themselves. Um, and he kind of tried to do that with the next ones. But um, he Failed. got so controlled over what he wanted to produce. Yeah, he didn't let the actors, you know, run free because he had Ewan McGregor for God's and, sake. He had yeah, Natalie Portman, you know, Oscar-nominated actors, and Liam Neeson. And Neeson. Yeah, yeah. I think also Lucas surrounds himself with yes men. Yes. Like, oh uh, yeah. Well, what's his name? Rick, Rick McCallum. McCallum. Rick yeah. Rick, oh, George, you're wonderful. I think it's what Moffat does as well. Really, he's yeah, got too is, many yes men around him. This is why we don't have Rick McCallum in any of the you know the the new films coming out. You know, no. Catherine Kennedy's taken over. She's gone. You know what? I know how to do this and so she's got Kazdan back which is amazing yeah. Loris Kazdan hasn't only just written the script for, for he's going to write the prequels uh, the sequels sorry he's written is he writing the he's writing the Star Wars one or is he is he writing the Han Solo one or the the Rogue one he's written one of the other anthology films that they're mm. writing so he knows the world he wrote two and three co-wrote two and th- um, mm. sorry Empire and Jedi so he knows the world and ter- pairing him up with J.J. Um, Abrams as well mm. so they've taken Lucas's original template for 7, 8 and 9 and they've gone okay let's take that and let's make it our own Yeah, and yeah, allow these people to have their own creativity you know um, Irvin Kirshner yes. was given the template but he went off his, in a lot of his own ideas yeah. in Empire whereas Richard Marquard in um, Jedi Jedi was yeah Lucas was on him on all him. the time. Yeah. So to yeah. have that, you know, Lucas has pretty much just written off and stepped away. So we will see an Abrams film, which I love. I love Abrams directing. Yeah. Um, and then for the second one, we'll have the guy know. who did Jurassic World, Colin. Colin, he's directing the the he's directing the third one. Oh, is he's he? Directing episode he's doing nine. number two. Two. It got dropped out, didn't it? Ryan is it? Oh, the guy who did uh, Godzilla. Godzilla is doing. Ryan Johnson, I think mm-hmm. he's doing. Whoever's listening, you'll, you 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 can correct us. Right, yeah, right, and correct us. He's doing episode eight. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So we've all got high hopes for Star Wars: The Apology. I do. I mm-hmm. have big hopes for um, yeah Star Wars. We're sorry about two or one, two, and three. Yeah. What about you, Rob? Oh, I've got. Um, I've come out the other end, and, and I'm looking. I'm really looking forward to watching these. I think. Uh, I think uh, Lucas fell in love with the technology a long time ago, the technology of making movies, you know, with, with CGI and all that sort of thing, and just forgot uh, how to, you know, make a good, entertaining movie. Uh, so with, with the new people on board who are talented in their own right, uh, I'm really excited for... Uh, the, is it the Rogue One? The end- Rogue One, yeah. It looks They just released the first car shot. Did you see that online? Oh, I'll have to check that out later tonight. Yeah, yeah, Felicity Jones, who was nominated for an Oscar for uh, The Theory of Everything, she's the lead. And they've got like a multicultural cast. Like you've got Hispanic, you've got African American, you've got um, 
um, um, Asian. Mm. You've got this. I didn't mean to be offensive, but you've got this. You know, multicultural cast, so it's not all just white guys. There's a female lead. Uh, it, it looks incredible and it's like these guys going in to get the Death Star plans in between episode 3 and 4 oh. it sounds like Voyager but good yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> I'll, I'll see Force Awakens for the nostalgia factor I think but I think Rogue One is the one that'll be fo- the most forward looking uh, for the for the uh, for the franchise in air quotes and, and that might indicate a direction that the series will take yeah I'm kind of not excited oh, I'm not excited but I'm kind of a bit blasé about they're doing a Boba Fett film eh they're doing a um, Harris a uh, 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 Han Solo film, eh? But this one, yeah, it's completely new characters mm. with characters we know possibly in the periphery, and it's about more about the world, and that's what we used to read. We used to read like you know the tales from the cantina or the tales from um, uh, Jabba's hut, all those books that they used to release mm. the expanded universe. Now we get to see the expanded universe, you yeah. know, in cinematic form, which is which is the really exciting thing about you know the world that we can now expand out into. If in Force Awakens, Han admits to shooting first, I'll be very, very happy. <laughs> so just uh, moving it back uh, on target on Doctor Who, uh, we're just going to talk briefly, I think, about the comfort Doctor Who stories that we're sort of willing to watch on a, on a rainy Saturday afternoon when the house is yours and uh, there's not much to do. Uh, fellas, uh, nominate a couple of stories. I suppose that you'd uh, you just sit down and watch just for the simple pleasure of it. Yeah, well, I've kind of got those on my uh, on my laptop, like the ones I've got off iTunes and stuff like that. So ones like um, Three Doctors, uh, Carnival of Monsters, um, uh, uh, Sunmakers, City of Death. These are ones that you know I can just chuck on and mm. just watch any time. Uh, and that's why I like a lot. There's the challenging stories, the really deep, dark stories, which you know, are amazing and masterpieces. But when you, you know, you're, it's raining and it's cold and you're snuggled up and you just want to chuck something on when you've got a, some time to yourself, you know, you chuck on the dinosaurs on a spaceship or you, you chuck on, um, you know, uh, you know, the doctor dances and the empty child. Those type of you know comfort stories are the ones that work for me. So you sway on between classic and new. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. What about you, other Rob? Uh, well, if we're going to be watching it uh, or stories on a rainy, gloomy afternoon, I'm, I'm going to go for something that's sort of darker. I mean, <laughs> uh, if, if people will be groaning, horror of Fang Rock. <laughs> I knew hey! it. I knew it. He's going to say it again. No, I can't oh. help it. But I mean, it would have to be a four-parter. I think six, six parts is a little bit too long. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anything from uh, season uh, seasons 12 to 14 would work for me. But then equally well would be something like The Curse of Fenric. Uh, I could sit down and watch that. That's just wonderful. But you know, horror, even caves. I know caves is a bit uh, a bit too bleak, but if it would suit my mood, I suppose, on a day like that. Uh, yeah, no, nothing real- too uh, too jazzy or too energetic or too you know flashy or, or you know lots of moving colours. I, I just enjoy those sh- stories that suit the mood. So while I fight the darkness, you embrace the darkness. Yeah, why not? <laughs> what about you, Mark? Well. The problem with doing a Doctor Who podcast is the last thing you want, want to do is actually watch bloody Doctor Who. But the last couple of months, I've tried to shake myself out of that funk. And I sat down a couple of weeks ago, watched Tomb of the Cybermen. Yeah. And had just complete and utter joy for it because I wasn't researching it. I didn't have to overly think about it. I just sat, watched, and enjoyed it. And Trouton's a good one to watch. Like, yeah. I, I can watch um, Mind Robber mm. whenever whenever yeah. I want just chuck it on and it's just especially and especially because Mind Rob is such a you know the episodes are so much shorter yeah. it's only five parters and each one goes for 
about a minute. Barely, yeah, yeah barely 30 seconds. Um, you know, Troughton's in fine form. There's mm. great creative ideas and interesting. You see all these great characters from literature and, and history. But the Troughton ones are great to watch, you know, mm. in, and because his energy is so infectious. So you can watch Tomb, you can watch Mind Robber, even the new ones, you know, uh, Enemy of the World is a great one to watch. Yeah. It's a great romp. Yeah. So. And then I watched uh, Day of the Daleks. I cheated and watched the CGI version of it. CGI one's good. It's actually really, it's really yeah. good, except it took out the no complications. <laughs> no, that is a, a, a one I love watching. Yeah, well. watched that. Uh, watched uh, Enlightenment as well. Wow. Yeah, I sort of mix them up a bit, but I really don't go back and watch much New Who. Yeah. Yeah. Gee, I feel like I want to watch Capaldi. I might go back and watch Listen again. Listen. Or, or maybe even Mummy on the Origin Express. Mummy's a great one, and that's one of that would Rob would like because it's it's great because it is so dark and it's so grim and it couldn't be done by any other doctor mm. mm-hmm. Capaldi's the only doctor who can do that one where he's there going I don't care about who dies I just want to get as much information as I can but then you know Clara forces him to do something honourable which is amazing but yeah so I like and they're 45 minute ones so you can just chuck it on and you can you know sit back and watch you know something like you know uh, Shakespeare Code I love Shakespeare Code I can chuck on um, uh, you know uh Power of Three. I love Power of Three. Except the ending. <laughs> the, 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 everything solved in 30, 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, Hence the Power of Three. Yes. Power of Three seconds. Mm. Um, but anything, especially from that first half of season seven, I like. Like Asylum of the Daleks, Dinosaurs, town, town, you know, A Town Called Mercy, Power of Three. Those you know, really solid standalone stories that you can just watch anytime. Hyde wouldn't mind going back and having a look at that as well. Well, I should give that another go. Well, part of my year seven and eight program as a teacher, I do I teach kids uh, how to write horror stories, and they put on scary story mm. performances, and uh, I show them Doctor Who to go. This is how you can scare people without using blood and gore like they do in the horror movies, and so I show them stuff like uh, Tooth and Claw, and I expanded it out this year. I showed them a couple more. I showed them um, I showed them Hide. And mm. the kids freaked out. It really, really freaked out with Hyde. And I'm rewatching it again. There's some really, really creepy moments in it using those tropes of the lightning mm. flashes. Something's there and then it's taken away. Yeah. And the kids got really freaked out. And so I went, oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah well done, who? So I could see Capaldi doing Hyde. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Capaldi would have been great in Hyde. Yeah. Um, and stuff like... Uh, and yeah, and show, and show them Blink as well. So that type of stuff. Yeah, if you want to show... Yeah, modern ones are good to go back on because they're just 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Yeah. Do you sway towards the classic or the new who, uh, Rob? Other Rob? The classic series, but now that Rob's mentioned all those stories like Blink and Hide and, and, and Listen, I mean, mm. they would certainly fall within the, the sort of shows that I would go back and watch. But yeah, definitely classic series. Definitely classic series. I like seeing it as a whole. I like seeing the whole thing. It'd be, it's good to watch a couple of episodes of... Uh, of Troughton and then and then chuck on a Eccleston then go back and watch a you know watch 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 Vengeance of Varus watch chuck on some Vengeance and then um and then chuck on you know chuck on uh Flatline just for the hell of it so very diverse yeah 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 yeah, yeah. no ultimate foe Terror of the no Vervoids. ultimate foe no um mysterious planet not a big fan of the whole trial series. No, hmm. no. It's the best part about the trial series on DVD is the making of. Yeah. The making of the box set of the Trial of a Time Lord is outstanding. The Trial and Tribulations the documentary. Tri- it's oh, like a car wreck. Who gets the blame? Where yeah. the fingers being pointed yeah. at? So. Yeah. 
I love that stuff. I love the the docos on that is just outstanding. I probably watch them more than I would rewatching the actual stories. Uh, Rob has spoken so eloquently about Capaldi uh, mm. and series eight. What we all uh, are looking forward to with series nine, you know, just a couple of more minutes. What we're yeah, looking forward good. to with series nine being a touch over a month away. Uh, Rob, what I'm most excited about is from what I've seen from the trailers is that Capaldi is now settled in his role. Um, and he's willing to explore and play it. And that's what it takes with all the Doctors. You know, it takes them a while to get into it. Like, it took Eccleston up to about Dalek before he went, this is how I play the character. It took Tennant till about, um, you know, the start of his season with Martha where he went, okay, I've got this character now. Um, Matt Smith, it took him about six months. So it's mm. talking about, look about um, Vampires of Venice. Um, he found his feet whereas Capaldi's been touch and go I think he's been his season 8 was very much like a Eccleston season it's sort of like if he only had that season he'd be very similar to Eccleston but he started to explore the lightness of him a lot more by the end of his season and I'm really looking forward to him more comfortable in the role I could see he was really forcing the dark Doctor whether that was him or the writing in season 8 which I loved it was a great change and it had to be such a uh, harsh change to be away from the whimsy of Smith but I'm looking forward to him easing up a bit now so he goes yeah I'm cranky yeah I'm old yeah I'm bitter but I'm also you know I can put on sunglasses and play the guitar I can you know I'm looking forward to this a more comfortable performance as the doctor he's not forcing it he's not finding his feet he knows what he wants to do now he knows how to play it now he's loosening up the costume he's got the trout and pants he's got the pertwee jacket he's wearing a bit more t-shirts he's got the hoodie which he wanted to bring in the first place and his relationship with clara is a bit more settled now so i i see this season as a lot more yeah it'll be a solid season because everyone knows what they're doing mm. he knows how to play the role he knows how to interact now he can start to play that's what Tennant did in, in season 3 he played with it in his second season and that's why he produced some of his best work in season 3 um, and, I, uh, and you know Matt Smith as well he did some of his best work even though the story arc of season 7 is weak his performance was solid um, before he went way out of control in the second half of season oh, sorry season 7 uh, his season six, the stories were bad. Um, the whole arc was a bit complicated. So with this season nine, Capaldi will be a lot more sure of himself. Mm. And Clara will be more sure of him as well. And so I'm seeing a lot more. We can sit back and go, he knows exactly what he's doing. And we'll see the real subtlety and nuances of his doctor come out. That's what I'm looking forward to. What do you reckon, Rob? I too am looking forward to seeing where Capaldi takes it now. I think uh, he, he and the production team have worked through, uh, in a sense, you know, trying out different things in in series eight, and they they may have settled on a, on a particular approach this year. Uh, and as you say, um, you know, hopefully with with new writers coming on and and some uh, previous ones from last year, uh, I think uh, hopefully they'll have a a more consistent approach. But if, if we get the quality of stories or the quality of the run that we got from last year, where there's about five or six or seven stories in a row that were that struck a chord with me and and and, and really hit the right note, uh, I'll be I'll be really happy. Uh, I get a sense that they're going to try and shoehorn as much classic series continuity or touches as they can uh, into series nine, uh, just judging from the trailers. So if that's the case, I'll look forward to those. Uh, those those notes uh, as well. So, but it's it's again, it's just watching Capaldi and what he does with the role. I, I find him 
a really fascinating uh, actor to watch on television uh, in this particular role. So yeah, more, more than anything else, Capaldi. What about you, Mark? I must admit, a couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with uh, young David Kitchen about this, and I said to him, oh, when's Doctor Who back? He said, oh, September the 19th. I said, oh, yeah. I just sort of almost forgot, really didn't care much about it. But I watched the, the uh, trailer today, and I must admit, my cold, dead heart did uh, beat a little bit. So like you, though, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Capaldi uh, can do with it. Mm. Uh, I am slightly worried about the first two episodes, but I'll go in with an open mind, I think, with a bottle of wine next to me and see what uh, happens there. But I think it's more Capaldi's performance. I thought he was outstanding in Series 8. And the two-parter coming back as well. Yeah, I'm happy with that, actually. Mm. Gives the stories a bit more room to breathe. I think so, yeah. Uh, Hopefully get some interesting character development and hopefully to shake things up a bit because it needed a bit of shaking up in terms of storytelling. My prediction for the first two... Uh, episodes is that we might actually come away with a better attitude towards Missy, Mark. <laughs> well, yeah, you guys are alone on the fact that you guys don't like Missy. <laughs> no, we're not alone, mate. I'll tell you what, we've got four other people we know. <laughs> four, we've got four people. Four wrong. people we know. No, look, we'll go in with an open mind. Good, good. We'll see what happens, you know. I'm very proud of you. Yeah, I'm being dragged I'm, along, kicking and screaming. but I'm giving him a supportive <laughs> rub on the back. It's Rob. like therapy. Yeah, we'll go with an open mind. As long as they keep the Iron Patriot away, we should be right. Yeah, I think poor old uh, Iron Brigadier is uh, well and truly dusted. But let's not go back with that one. So you agree it was crap? Um, I, I look, I bad agree. taste. Uh, I'm not bad taste. It's just it was a, it was an interesting uh, step. Um, uh, I, I, I think Michelle Gomez was incredible, and I think she's far more menacing and evil and terrifying on screen as the master than uh, John Sims ever was um, and she brought back some true menace that wasn't there for a long time like when when Delgado was in fiery form he could he could be charming and, mm. and offhand but he could be menacing at times mm. Anthony Ailey not so much uh, he had a great camp approach to the master but you know when you're looking at you know, uh, Deadly Assassin Master or Keeper of Traken Master, there was an evil and a, a, a desperate nature to them. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, we kind of get that back with Missy, which I've missed. I missed that in the Master, a menace and a an evil about him. Not so much, not sure, so sure about the psychotic part. The Master was never really psychotic. It was just, no, just evil, plain evil, yeah. plain evil, yeah. just an asshole. I hope he changes the writing a little bit. Doesn't make us so one note, in my opinion. Were the rest of his female characters he writes for? Yeah, yeah, getting it. Yeah, that's the thing. If they bring in a character like that and they're only in one, you know, one story or bit, mm. you can't, you can't give them room to breathe. You mm. want to see that character expand out. Even with John Sim, they just had him on what for the last two parts, mm. and then he came back for the, the end of pantomime. Um, <laughs> that's good. Isn't yeah, it? I like that. Thank you. That's it. Uh, trademark Rob Lloyd. Um, <laughs> so yeah, giving Michelle Gomez more time as the master, we can see that subtlety. We can see that range because she's an incredible performer. I have nothing but absolute love and respect for Michelle Gomez. She is an inc- one of the most unique actresses working at the moment, and she's perfect casting. I just need to give her just let her let her play. Give her time to play. Wise words, Rob. Should we give it another go? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and now that's the enthusiasm I expect from old school fans with anything new related. Where's my time machine? I want to go back to 1975 right now. <laughs> and now it's time for our Who Knows segment where we ask our latest victim, Rob Lloyd, 
uh, to guess the Doctor Who story based on comments left on YouTube. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready as I'll ever be. Okay, let's dress for the occasion. <laughs> okay, so the Doctor comes to America for a dentist due to the fact that England doesn't have any. <laughs> the gun fighters? Correct. In the future, will we wear our underpants over our jumpsuits? Uh, frontier in space? Uh, close, not really. Seeds of death. Oh, okay. No background music. Just a man quietly struggling with a rubber octopus. Weird, he should have kicked it in the tentacles. Spearhead from space? Well done. Where did he get his jelly babies from? Does he have a machine in the TARDIS which makes them? Did he buy them? With what kind of money? Did he steal them? A bit too dishonest a thing for the doctor to do. Um, okay, jelly babies are you. So, um, uh, robots of death. Well done! <laughs> Where the hell did you pull that one from? Jeez. <laughs> So they wear birds on their heads. Ancient religions show people with heads or hats of animal visages as well. In the Doctor Who universe, humans may have seen a guardian visiting for whatever reason and liked the illusion so much they adopted it. Enlightenment. Well done. Liquefy people into edible protein. Now, if Thatcher had another few years at the helm, she'd have snapped that idea like a shot. Yes, but that would be consumer resistance from uh, Revelation of the Daleks. Well done. I'm a huge fan of Seven, but it's really hard to qualify him as a chess master when he's been guarded by such obvious morons. Hitler in Doctor Who. Oh, um, that would be uh, Silver Nemesis. No, it's Paradise Towers. Close. Oh, because of Richard Bryce with his Hitler Mo. Yeah, and they're both crap. <laughs> Not to diss this scene, because I said I love it, but two of the sounds I use for the ship sound very much like a truck horn and an aeroplane engine. Um... Would you like a clue? Yes. It's from Doctor Who. Oh, good. Ambassadors of Death. No, End of the World. Oh. So you did quite well, actually. You only got uh, two wrong, so you got six out of eight. Oh, how is that? How do I compare to the others? Um, Andrew Smith is still winning by eight. Ooh. He got, he got a full run. Uh, but I think you're head-to-head with uh, Jono from the Zeus Pod podcast. Ah. So, uh, I'm coming yes. out. I'm looking at you, Jono. Well done. Uh, your prize tonight is another guest appearance on 42 to Doomsday. Woohoo! Take that, suckers! I'd like to thank the Academy for <laughs> the sound of one man clapping. You're starting a slow 80s clap? It's like the end of an 80s romantic comedy. This is so Breakfast Club right now. Don't you forget about me. <laughs> Alright, Rob. Well, thank you very much for appearing back on our humble podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you back. Absolute pleasure to be here. Now, do you want to give a final plug to your Star Wars show that's uh, coming up in September? I would absolutely love to. My Star Wars themed show, which is part three of my nerd trilogy, Rob Lloyd the Hard Awakens opens at the Melbourne Fringe Festival at The Loft at the Lithuanian Club on Friday the 18th of September. We run for two weeks and we're at 8pm, 7pm on Sundays. For more information, go to my website, robloyd.com.au. If you want to find out more about me, you can also go to Twitter, at futurerobbyby. I'm on Facebook, uh, Instagram. And LinkedIn. (laughs) Someone was ready for it. So yes, everything's on my website. And come along and see the show. We'll put links in the show notes as well. Beautiful. It's always a pleasure to be hanging out with you guys and and, uh, talking the Doctor Who Shiite. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Literally. And on that note, I've been Mark. I've been Rob. And I've also been Rob. We'll speak again soon. 
You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.